Amen. In a moment, we'll be going to Jeremiah chapter 23. I'm going to be using a reasonable amount of scripture today. Don't say that by way of apology, but just so you can do some stretches, so you can get ready to look for some, some word. The last uh, Sunday morning before we left for conference, preached a message about the fact that the law of God does not change, that he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. We spoke about how when the Lord paid the ultimate price for us on Calvary, that he purchased us, we became his possessions, and that how that purchase included everything about us, our past, our present, and our future. And uh, one of the laws that we considered that does not change is the law of sowing and reaping. And we spoke of how we reap today what we sowed yesterday. And Brother Gratian touched on some of that this morning. And what we sow today, we, along with others, will reap tomorrow. And lets us know that it's very important that we understand that today's actions are tomorrow's harvest. Today's actions will be tomorrow's harvest. And if we if we continue to reap the harvest of our past, particularly our, our unsaved past, we will continue to sow that seed into our future. But if we choose to change the seed that we are using and sow the seed of the incorruptible Word of God into our fields, if you like, or into our lives, we will reap the fruit that He desires us to bear. Amen. And so I'm in that vein, if you like, in that, that track of... of, of Sowing and reaping and seed, I'm, I'm going to be staying in that sort of path today. The 23rd chapter of Jeremiah speaks very strongly about shepherds and pastors that do not care for their flocks, that do not minister to those that they have been entrusted with in the way that God would have them to. And it's, if you're in any kind of ministerial responsibility, it's a very sobering passage of Scripture to read. It also has some very strong words to say about prophets who prophesy from their own hearts and minds and don't speak the word of God. They don't speak the things that God has given to them. And the Lord makes it very clear in that chapter that there is no similarity between the two, between prophets that speak their own thoughts and those that speak the word of God. And he emphatically declares that the difference between those two is quite profound. And in Jeremiah 23 and 28, it says, The prophet that has a dream, it's talking about his own imagination, it's not a dream from the Lord. It says, Let him tell a dream. But he that has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord. So to, to dilute the King James of that verse, he's saying, Let the prophet who is filled with the dreams of his own heart, speak those things. But he said, but then also let the prophet who has a word from me speak that truth faithfully. And the Lord says there's no comparison between wheat and chaff. They're not similar. They're not even remotely the same. He's saying they're opposite. And so with the help of the Lord this morning, I want to minister for a little while about the wheat and the chaff. The wheat and the chaff. When grain is harvested, whether it's by hand, with a sickle as it would have been predominantly in Bible times or with machinery on a large scale as in used in many places today. What is also collected along with the grain is some of the stalks of the wheat and not only that but the rough outer material that surrounds that grain of wheat. And it is that material, the stalks, the rough coating that surrounds the the grain that we would describe as the chaff. And once the grain has been harvested... 
There is a process that, again, whether manually or by machine, involves what is called threshing and winnowing the grain. And we will come back to those two words in a little while. But that process causes the grains of wheat to be separated from the chaff. It separates the two. And the chaff is produced as part of the production of wheat. It grows up with the wheat plant. But if the wheat is going to serve its intended purpose, if it's going to be and achieve its maximum value, there must be a separation that takes place. And the chaff, that coarse, dry, straw-like material, cannot be digested by humans. So it offers no nutritional value whatsoever. Animals can digest and it often finds its way into various animal feed, but people cannot. And this, this separation of wheat and chaff is used throughout Scripture to paint a picture of things that are profitable and things that are unprofitable. And one of perhaps the most well-known references is in Psalm 1. We'll read the first four verses. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, or the things that he focuses on, the things that his heart is full of, is the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And because he does that, he shall be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That's a great promise. But then verse 4 says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. The psalmist here shows us two very opposite, very polar outcomes. Those that choose the word of God as their pattern, as their instruction, as what is in the desire of their heart, they will be fruitful. And they will prosper. Now, contrary to a lot of opinions today, that prosperity is not big houses, private airplanes and fancy cars. That prosperity is to be blessed by God, to draw near to God, to get to know God in a personal relationship. But the other end of that spectrum is that those who do not follow the word of God will only produce chaff or nothing of eternal value or quality. It's quite a a blunt comparison. It's kind of like this extreme and that extreme. There's not a, little, not a lot of middle ground in there. There's no suggesting that the outcomes are similar or that one is only slightly better than the other. But one is good and one is bad. One is healthy and productive. The other is inedible straw that will be blown away. In a, in a similar sort of strong comparison... In Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus is speaking about the end times and he's talking about uh, final judgment, he, the Lord describes a separation that is just as clearly defined. Matthew 25 and 32, it says, And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And if you read on in that chapter, we won't this morning, but if you read on in the rest of that chapter, The sheep were sent to the right-hand side. The goats were sent to the left. And again, in in as opposite a contrast as you can possibly have, one side was to everlasting life, and the other side was to everlasting destruction and torment. It was a very clear, definite separation that all of humanity will be subject to. Whether we like that or not, whether that's palatable in the culture in which we live, That's what the Word of God says. 
that challenges the postmodern thinking of we all have our own path and there is no absolute truth. S- scripture like that makes it very clear that there are only two options. There are only two options. Amen. And we know that Jesus came to a world that needed a savior. We know and we can testify in our own lives that all of mankind stood guilty of sin and that the Lord made a way where there was no way. And I'm so glad for that this morning. Amen. That his love, his grace, his mercy provided us with an opportunity to be saved. Amen. But in that same provision, humanity is also provided with the opportunity to reject the gospel message. We all, after all, have a free will. Amen. So both opportunities are presented to us. It's a little bit like, you know, in our families. Our parents can make us go to church. And if your parents make you go to church, you ought to thank your parents for that. You may not always feel like it, but they can make you go to church, but they cannot make you saved. Your will gets involved in that process. But parents, stick at it because your children have an exponentially higher chance of being saved if you get them to the house of God. Amen. Parenting is ultimately about trying to provide the best opportunity for our children to make the right choices. That's, that's the end goal. The, the season of their lives where you can make their choices by force passes very quickly. And you are hopefully doing our best to say these are the best opportunities we can present to you. And there is no better opportunity you can offer your children than to know the Lord and to know what it is to be raised in the house of God. If your, your children give you a hard time and they push back, don't worry, that will pass. Amen. This is a long story and it's not a popularity contest. Amen. So this choice that we all have produces a separation, those who choose Jesus and those who reject him. John said in John 3 and 19, he said, this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world but that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John, the Gospel of John records that this choice was presented, but men find themselves condemned because with the option of light, they chose darkness. With the option of salvation, they rejected that and chose to stay in the darkness. Amen. Matthew chapter 3, I told you there was a bit of scripture today, but Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7 is a, an account of a portion of the ministry of John the Baptist. And it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, wanting to be baptized, he said unto them, I've never said this to anybody that's ever come to church, just in case you're wondering, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. Or in other words, demonstrate actions that show that your heart is behind this decision and that you're not simply wanting to get baptized because it's what everybody's doing at the moment. He said, show me something from your heart. And then he said, as it was almost as if he could see what was going on in their minds, he said, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn or cut down and cast into the fire. John said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, 
whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. We'll pause there for a moment. But John said to these Jewish leaders, he said, don't think your connection with Abraham is enough to save you. Don't think because you can take out the family tree or log on to Ancestry.org and find your way back to Abraham that that's good enough. It may have been at some point. But he's saying now you need to repent. In fact, and said that tree that you're putting so much confidence in right now is at risk of being chopped down. Amen. And then he said, I baptize you with water because you're repentant, because you want to repent of your sins. But there's someone coming after me and he is mighty. And he said, I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. He said, but when he comes, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And then look what it says in verse 12, the very next verse, Matthew 3 and 12, whose fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly or thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now some of you may understand what that verse means, others not so much. But if you remember when we began, we mentioned threshing and winnowing. Threshing and winnowing. When wheat was harvested, it was taken to a place, to a location that was known as the threshing floor. The threshing floor, contrary to how it sounds, wasn't in someone's house, but usually it was an outdoor area, usually in an elevated position, exposed to the wind. The ground there was most likely packed quite hard, possibly even had a smooth stone surface. And the harvested material, the grain with all the stalks and all the other bits that were caught up in the harvest, were taken there and it was placed on this threshing floor, on this area, and it was threshed strangely enough, on a threshing floor. What that word means is that force was applied to the grain. Force was applied to the harvest. Sometimes it was an animal like an oxen walking on it or it was people using tools of various kinds to basically beat the grain. There was significant force applied to that which was harvested and that force would cause the grains of wheat to become loosened from the chaff, from that husky, dry completely without nutrition substance that was attached to that. Now, in large-scale operations like wheat farming in Australia, that's all done by machinery. If you see some of the size of wheat farms, doing that by hand would be impossible. But in some parts of the world where it's a smaller crop, some of that is still done by hand, where people take that, that, that harvest to a particular place and they thresh it. Or if it helps you understand, they thrash it. That's what they do. They give that harvest a good old-fashioned thrashing is what they do. And so that's what it's talking about when John the Baptist said that Jesus would thoroughly purge his floor. It meant that the grain on his threshing floor, that he would thoroughly thresh that, that it would be well worked. Amen. It meant that he would make sure that the grain was well and truly separated from the chaff. Amen. So what about the expression, his fan is in his hand? He wasn't sitting there fanning himself like some of you do in a hot service when the air conditioner's not up to speed. But different cultures use different tools with different names, but the fan was most likely like some kind of a scoop or even a fork, if you think pitchfork, that kind of a farm-type tool, and there's a lot of different, different cultures and different versions of that. But that tool was used to throw the threshed material into the air. 
It was tossed up, and that's why it was always in an open, exposed place. And the grain, which was heavier than the chaff, would fall back to the ground, and the chaff, which was just light like straw, would blow away, or it would blow into a place where it would be collected and then burned as rubbish. And so the one who is coming after John the Baptist, that we obviously know as Jesus, is going to baptize people with the Holy Ghost and with fire as a part of that threshing of his floor. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. They kind of looked a little bit like human candles. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or as the Holy Ghost enabled them to do. It was not a naturally acquired language. It was a supernatural experience. Here in Acts chapter 2, and what we so often call the birth of the church, we see wind and we see fire. Amen. Both of those are a part of the threshing process. Amen. There is the wind that is involved in the separation and there is fire that is involved in the consuming or the removing of the chaff, which helped to bring purity to the harvest. Amen. Now, to follow that down a little bit of another pathway, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and we will read some scripture from here in a moment, David, King David had made an error that had caused God to punish Israel. And you can look into that backstory if you don't already know it. But when David repented, as a part of the process of his wanting to make things right with God, this is what he was instructed to do in First Chronicles 21 and 18. It says, Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad, who was the prophet, to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons with him hid, him, hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat, so they, they kind of interrupted what he was doing. And David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. And then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me for the full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. He wanted to obey what God had said so he could cause this, this plague, this punishment to stop as soon as possible. And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings and the threshing instruments for wood and the wheat for the meat offering. I'll give it all to you. You're the king, take it all. I'll gladly give it to you. And David said to Ornan, Nay or no, but I will truly buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. There's a very powerful principle there in sacrifice. There's a, there needs to be something that we are involved in. Verse 25 says, So David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offerings. It's not a coincidence that David was specifically sent to a place, to a threshing floor, to offer that sacrifice. 
The Lord wasn't looking for a free spot where nobody was, but there was a specific purpose in God's instruction. And the significance of that purpose, rather, is seen all the more so when you jump across to 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1, because there it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. This is the temple that Solomon built. Begin to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. All of this has purpose. God doesn't do anything by accident. Amen. Now, we understand in a modern context that the house of God today and back in the Old Testament was a place of sacrifice and of worship. Amen. The Bible talks about the sacrifice of praise. In the Old Testament, it was literal animal sacrifice. But the house of God is also meant to be the place where the grain is separated from the chaff, where there's a reason the house of God was built on a threshing floor. There's there's a principle that is there that we should never forget. It is not to be in the sense when it separates the wheat from the chaff that we say, well, you can come in, but you can't. Your wheat, you can stay. Your chaff, go and get out of here. That's not what it's talking about. I'm kind of glad for that. Amen. But rather it is so that those who come to present themselves, that's you and I, come to present ourselves to Jesus as living sacrifices, if we want to do his will, if we want him to have his way in our lives, we must be willing to allow him to both thresh and winnow. Amen. That's a little scary because we've just learned that what threshing means. <laughs> but that's what it's about. In much the same way as the chaff grows with the grain, the Word of God grows in us in the midst of a fallen human nature, in the midst of a corrupt vessel. All of us are a work in progress and will be until the day that that trumpet sounds. We have a broken nature. We have the distractions of life. We have the cares of this world that we are constantly dealing with. And if we're honest, we deal with them better some days than others. Amen? Amen. There isn't one of us that is born of water and spirit that does not need to continue to change and to be refined. Amen. That's why the temple was specifically built on a threshing floor. It wasn't built on a day spa. It wasn't built on a, on a hotel wasn't built on you know a holiday location but it was built on a place of separation and in the book of malachi and i know i'm jumping around a bit but hopefully this will all come together and make sense in the book of malachi chapter 3 again this passage is prophetically connected to both john the baptist and jesus and in malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 it says behold i will send my messenger And he shall prepare the way before me. That's talking about John the Baptist. The me is talking about Jesus. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now that that part so far is exciting. The Lord's coming to his house. But then verse 2 says, But who may abide the day of his coming? And who... And he, sorry, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he, that's the one who's coming, is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. 
and he shall purify the sons of Levi. Now, without getting too far off track, the sons of Levi were the priests in the Old Testament. Peter tells us in the New Testament that we're all priests, so nobody gets a pass here. Okay? He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. Why? That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then, after that process has taken place, shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. So again, what we see here is the arrival of Jesus to his house and in his arrival it begins a purifying and a refining process that is designed to produce an offering that is pleasant to him. That's what we... That, I, I'm sorry if this hurts your feelings, but that's why we exist. To present an offering that is pleasant to Him. That is our number one purpose for existence. Now, you may want to be a fireman. You may want to be a doctor. You may want to get married and have 18 kids. May the Lord bless you. But whatever it is that you do with your life, your primary purpose is that I would be an offering of praise and worship that I would be acceptable in His sight, not by my might, not by my power, but by His Spirit, as He sits as the refiner of silver and gold. Amen. And it almost seems to me as though the Apostle Peter might have had this passage in mind when he wrote to the New Testament church. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened unto you. And yet we do, don't we? When something goes wrong, we think, Lord, I've been good. I haven't messed up. Why are you allowing this, Lord? I should be blessed, not suffering. But Peter said, don't be amazed. Don't be shocked. Don't, don't think, wow, this has never happened before. And then he said, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed you may be glad also with exceeding joy he said if you be reproached for the name of christ happy are you or rather it's not you should not you know you're not some sort of weird person enjoys pain but rather you you rejoice in the process and its purpose for the spirit of glory and of god resteth upon you and on their part he is evil spoken but on your part he is glorified but then he said just in case you know I've heard people describe themselves as being persecuted when they just made really bad choices. And just to clarify that, Peter said, but don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer, as a busybody in other men's matters. He said, if you're suffering because of that, that's on you. He said, you brought that about. That's got nothing to do with God. But in verse 16, he says, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come, this is getting back to the house, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them and be, sorry, of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, that's not suggesting that, whoa, we only just made it in. It's talking about if we are going to go through that process, that refining process, what shall the end of the ungodly and the sinner be? Where shall they appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. So Peter said, if you suffer because of your own actions, that's on you. You get to learn a lesson. 
He said, but if you're serving God, doing your best to walk with God, and you suffer and you go through difficulty, God is in the process of revealing His glory through you. Why do I exist? For His glory. Amen. There is a judgment or a refining that must begin at the house of God. There is a threshing and a winnowing that is separating the grain from the chaff in his house. Amen. That's why That's why we come. It's not always, I certainly hope you don't feel like every time you come to church you've been beaten and thrashed. But God is always working in us. God is always trying to bring about change. He is the change agent. Amen. It's, it's not me. I may be the pastor, but I can't change your life. My job is to do my best to steer you to the one that can. And to say, if you'll, if you'll do what he says, if you'll, if you'll believe in his word and have faith, then he will bring about transformation. Amen. That's one of the reasons that we come to his house. And, and Peter said, if Jesus needs to purify us, then what is the status of those that have rejected him? But if you find yourself on a threshing floor, he said, he said, if you find yourself suffering according to the will of God, he said, commit yourself. Commit the keeping of your souls under him because he is going to keep you. We heard about his faithfulness this morning from Brother Gratian. It doesn't matter what you're going through. If you know you've done everything you know how to do and it's still happening, commit your soul into the one that can keep your soul because he's going to bring you through. He's a faithful creator. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord. To try and bring all of this together, hopefully and make a little bit of sense this morning. The separation of the wheat and the chaff at one level speaks of the church and the world. We, we read about the sheep and the goats. At one level, that's what it speaks about. Amen. At another level, it speaks of the purifying that Jesus does within his house. Like Malachi said, he shall come to his house and he will sit like a refiner. But to take it even another level, we need to understand that it takes place in each of us at the level of individual, at the level of what is God's will in my life. What does God want to change in me? What is it that needs to be refined? And that, if, if you think that's a light question to ask, I would encourage you to reconsider that. Because if you pray and say, God, what needs to change? And you pray and you say, refine me, Lord. The way I read the scripture, that involves fire. So be careful if you're going to pray that. But we have to remember that at the individual level, just as it is in the physical, there is no nutrition in chaff. It cannot be digested. So when we do not remove it, or we do not rather allow the Lord to remove it, it causes the quality of our spiritual diet to be affected, which then causes our spiritual strength to be affected. And we wonder why we're struggling. We wonder why we're doing it tough when we're, we're, we're eating handfuls of chaff because we haven't allowed the Lord to move that out of the way. And I know this is perhaps a, a simple thought today, but as we begin 2023 together, I know it's, what is it, it's the 15th of January today. Most New Year's resolutions already broken. Most of us had two weeks to go back to eating chocolate and too much coffee or whatever it is that, that you wanted to, to do. That's human nature. But in the kingdom of God, we can be victorious. In the kingdom of God, they're not New Year's resolutions. They're submissions to the change process of God. 
And I want to challenge us to allow God to be the refiner in our lives. If we're aware of things, you know, we, we sow the good seed of the Word of God into our hearts and our lives, and I hope you do that. I know we, we have a strong emphasis on the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God because in it is life. Amen. But if you're going to sow it and you're going to let it be sown into your heart and you're going to believe that what it will do, guaranteed, is it will reveal the need for change. There is not a person among us that God's Word is going to search the heart of and go 100% bill of health. I'm not suggesting that means we're all wicked criminals, but we're all in that process. We're all, in, we're all on that threshing floor, and there are times we go through things where it feels like we're getting a hiding, amen? And we think, Lord, what did I do? You know, instead of thinking, what did I do? We need to say, Lord, what are you trying to do? What is your purpose? What is your will? We've said it so many times, but we all pray, Lord, change me. And the Lord allows the circumstance to generate change. And we say, Lord, deliver me. And he delivers us. And then we pray again, Lord, change me. And he's like, will you please make up your mind? Do you want change or comfort? Because they don't go together. They do not go together. Amen. And if we will allow his word to reveal the need for change in us, then we have to let the Holy Ghost and fire remove and consume that which should not be there. Amen. It is, and this is simple, I know, but it is so very important that we allow the Spirit of God to work with the Word of God. They work together. They are not two separate entities. They are part of one whole. He, it's His Spirit. He is the Word. Amen. It is crucial that we are a people of prayer. It is crucial that we walk in the Spirit. The writer of Galatians did not write that, that we would have some warm, fuzzy experience with God. And we, I know we have those, but when he was talking about walking in the Spirit, he was talking about a process of continuing refinement. Amen. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 that the moving of the Spirit was like the wind. He said, you know, it's, it's a, he said, it's like the wind. You, you can see its effect. Sometimes you can hear its effect, he said, but you don't see where it comes from or where it's going. And he, he drew that parallel. And that was the sound in Acts chapter 2 that heralded the arrival of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. There was a sound like a rushing mighty wind. And the thing we have to understand, without the wind, there's no winnowing. Without the wind, there's no winnowing. In other words, when, when the seed is being tossed in the ground, we need the wind to take the chaff away. There's no breeze. Everything falls back down. That's why we've got to walk in the Spirit. We need the Word of God to move in us and through us and take some of that chaff out. The old song says, the wind is blowing again. And I'm not going to sing that this morning. Some of us will know that song. But I want to challenge, let's stand together this morning. I want to be challenges that we would be a people that would let the wind blow. That we would sow the seed of God's Word into our hearts and to our minds, and as it speaks to us, as he turns up the flame a little bit and the gold begins to melt and the dross begins to rise to the surface, as we begin to say, Lord, change me, and he begins to thresh us a little bit, that we would let the Spirit of God blow through and that it would take that chaff out of our lives and that crop would continue to be re-sown and reinvested and re-purified. 
not just for our benefit, but for the lives that we sow into out there. We heard about the mission field today, and you've heard me say it before, but every single person that has the Holy Ghost is a missionary. Every single soul that is not born again is a mission field. And that is our responsibility. I don't want to give them chaff. There's enough chaff out there. There's no shortage of chaff in this world. But let the incorruptible word of God be sown into good ground. Bring forth good fruit. Continue to be refined. Let's lift our hands this morning. Amen. Let's pray together. We're just going to present ourselves as a church today. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we worship you.